open your scriptures to somebody removed the little slides. Open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 28. It's actually a heavy pulpit if it doesn't have the right slides underneath it. It is a joy to gather with you, really in the spirit of the early church. They gathered together face to face uh, around the things of Jesus Christ. That's what the word church means. Ecclesia is a called out gathering together. And I was reminded uh, listening to a podcast this week. Uh, that we really don't know how many times we have to gather together, do we? I mean, is it two, 20, over a hundred? I don't know. Um, but to be reminded that it is a gift to gather together on the first day of the week, as the church has done for centuries, uh, around the things of Jesus Christ. Yes, to love and care for one another, but really to set our affections on things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, waiting For his enemies to become his footstool. And that's what we live in anticipation of and look forward to. Matthew chapter 28. I'll read that in a second. Uh, Today is the second to last sermon in a series called Who We Are. And we're talking about another essential or core value. Maybe you, you relate more with that idea. And it's talking today we're talking about missions. Uh, or mission, we're going to make a distinction between the two of those in just a second. Uh, Only twice have I been to a people to proclaim the good news of Jesus where the Coca-Cola company wasn't there first. Coke has infiltrated more places than the gospel because Coke had a mission accompanied by an effective strategy. With the exceptions of a civil war, In the northern frontier of southern Sudan and a forgotten people in northern Madagascar, uh, both of which peoples had no roads to access them. We had to fly in. Coke was already there in some of the most difficult places. Coke is already present. And it's one thing if we're talking about competing beverages, right? We're familiar with the, the cola wars between Coke and Pepsi, but we're not. We're talking about a carbonated sugar, caffeine beverage being in more places and more accessible than the good news of Jesus Christ. Who himself said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus also said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the very last chapter of the very last book of our Bible, there is an invitation to everyone. It says this, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely without price. I think the video should remind us this morning, the prayer cast, that the world is thirsty. And Coca-Cola doesn't have the answer. No matter how many flavors they spin out. They can never satisfy spiritually. 
They cannot fulfill their campaign ad from, I believe it was 1976, that says Coke adds life. They can't do that. There is only one who can give eternal life, and he is not accessible where I believe he ought to be accessible by now in the year 2021. In February 2003, I boarded a small Cessna caravan, left my family, who were very young at the time, in Nairobi, Kenya, and traveled with a team of Sudanese and Kenyan missionaries, some who had never been out of their own country, entering a very new culture in South Sudan that was notorious at the time for its civil war, famine, genocide, and the Guinea worm. It's about 200 miles north of Juba, located just below the demilitarized zone. Uh, Before we went in as American missionaries, we had to receive UN training and pack quick run packs and have coordinates to to the nearest airport, which was simply a dirt strip that they had to fly over first and scare the goats and sometimes the soccer players off the pitch before they then came back around and landed. This was eight years before southern Sudan would gain its independence from the north. Casings from AK-47 rifles littered the ground and sun-bleached bones lay in eerie piles from the strategic bombings of the northern Khartoum Islamic Air Force who would bomb the cattle herds to deliberately try to starve these people to death. I remember getting off the caravan in what I already thought was a difficult place to minister in Kenya and being greeted by the skeletal figures of Nuer people that gave evidence of a, of a land ravaged by war and famine. There were no tourist destinations, no hotels, and not a single bottle of Coke. The only thing to be found was famine, death, displaced people, and courageous Sudanese Christians enduring persecution. Some of the students I taught under the Tukol, which is a thatched-roofed hut, there were about 40 students in all. Some walked from five days away. An evangelist was gifted a single bicycle to go up ahead of us and announce that somebody was coming in to teach them about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they walked five days to be there to sit on a very thin, narrow wooden bench for about six hours a day. I remember the first time I had to go use the drop toilet, and that's all it was, was a hole in the ground, hopefully sturdy enough that it didn't cave in when you used it. And I found out later they were almost going to block the door to not let me leave because they thought I was going to leave them and not keep teaching them about Jesus. I don't know where they thought I would go. The plane left. By UN regulations, the plane is only allowed to be on the ground for 30 minutes enough to refuel. And I've never seen a refueling like this before. They roll the drums out. They lift them up. And then the plane takes off. And the, the only bicycle there was the evangelist's. Another religious leader came from a couple days walk away to disrupt the meetings because he was jealous. And he sat out. The students would not let him in. They demanded he stay out. He tried to stir up division. And after about three hours of listening to the teaching, he humbled himself, asked forgiveness, and asked if he could become a student. They let him in. A lot more to that story. Amazing things that God has done, not only there in the northern frontier of Sudan, but in many other places of the world. Dale Loesch of Crossworld says this, the migration of nations, the rise of a global missionary force, the rapid growth of urban populations, 
the development of a global economy, the explosion in technology and the restriction on religious activity in many countries are just a few of the realities that demand we reexamine our model. To keep on doing things the way we've always done them when the world and its people have so drastically changed is both naive and arrogant. Naive to assume that the same approach in a radically different context will continue to work and arrogant to assume that we have no need to learn and grow in our approach to making disciples of all nations. The population of the world is 7.9 billion people. You're one of those 7.9 billion people. 7.9 billion people who have a soul that must live eternally somewhere. People who are thirsty and trying to satisfy that thirst with all sorts of things. And the majority of these people are not followers of Jesus, many because they've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They are, as Acts 26.18 says, in darkness and under the power of Satan and therefore without the forgiveness of their sin. Here's our mission as a church. To display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. That mission is narrow and focused. And while we're accomplishing that mission, some people may be hurt or misunderstood or feel uncared for. But that's our mission. That's what we aim for. And our essentials, the core values that keep us on target with this mission are scripture. Everything must be anchored back into God's word if it's going to be God's mission done rightly. Worship, ministry, community, and missions. And the Christ-centeredness of these essentials is on purpose. Scripture, knowing Jesus. Worship, adoring Jesus. Community, displaying Jesus. Missions, proclaiming Jesus. And ministry, serving Jesus. Today, we're considering the fourth essential. Before we look at the Scripture texts, I want to make a necessary distinction between mission and missions Plural. Mission is what God has been doing ever since the creation of the world. Really, ever since Genesis 3, verse 15, and then his call of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And he will continue to do that until the divine close or conclusion of the final book of Revelation. When everybody is going to be singing God and the Lamb's praises because he has saved a people and redeemed a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. As John Stott asserts, God made a promise to Abraham. An understanding of that promise is indispensable to an understanding of the Bible and of the Christian mission. It's a continuation of it. Missions is how God's people partner with God or serve God in his work to accomplish missions. Neither mission nor missions originates with man, but it's something God initiates. It is something God does, and he works out through his Holy Spirit. Like the four other essentials we've already discussed, and like next week's essential on ministry, uh, this could be a six-sermon series on its own. So we're going to have to limit our discussion. It's basically proclaiming Jesus from our neighborhoods to the nations. But I want to focus on the nations this morning. Jesus gave us a mission, often called a commission, or what we as Christians know of as the Great Commission. We need to understand the Great Commission, which is communicated in at least five different places, because if we don't understand his mission for us as a church and as disciples, we'll fail to accomplish the mission. 
And what's at stake are eternal souls. What is the mission? Matthew 28, 19. I'm going to to do a quick overview because all, all the Great Commission passages intersect at one important point. Go, therefore, and here's the activity, make disciples. Here's the geographical scope of all nations. Stay in Matthew 28, because we'll come back to it. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and here's the activity. Proclaim the gospel to, here's the geographical scope, the whole creation. Luke 24, 47, the activity. Preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name, geographical scope to all nations. John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so, here's the activity. I am sending you. In Acts 1, verse 8, you will be, here's the activity, my witnesses and the geographical scope to all nations to the end of the earth. Here, here's what they all have in common. It is the ambition to get the gospel to people who don't have it. That's Christ's desire for his church. It surprises some Christians to find out that the term missions and missionary are never used in Scripture. And it comes as somewhat as a surprise and creates some confusion. But that does not mean, however, that we, we simply get to spin out and create a new office. You know, like, like some churches do when they can't quite sort out who the men serving are. So they're, if, if there's pastors and deacons, they know there's somebody who should be serving. So they call them trustees instead of using pastor, elder, overseer and deacons. We don't just get to create a new office if we're going to go back to one of our other core essentials, which is Scripture. In Matthew 28, 16 to 20, Jesus had already risen bodily from the dead. He's been walking on the earth for 40 days and he's about to ascend to his father. These are the final words of, if you would, the global commander in chief to his disciples. His 11 disciples are there. They've walked with him. They've now witnessed him for 40 days And he's about to ascend. And of all things that he could say, this is what he says. Look at verse 18. Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why does Jesus say that? Well, his disciples had recently seen him rejected and crucified. He appeared weak and defeated as he hung on a Roman cross. Jesus suffered horribly and died. He was buried and the disciples were overcome by fear and doubt and they were scattered and perplexed. And Jesus appears to them and he says, all authority has been given to me. The text clearly identifies the audience. It says now the look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And that's where he appears to them. The text also defines the mission of all the things it says. There is simply one verb surrounded by participles. So the verb tells you the activity and the participles tell you how that is to be accomplished. The verb is to make disciples. What does that look like? Baptizing new followers and teaching them all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded. And because that's going to take people into some very difficult areas and hazardous countries with incredible language barriers in the face of danger, possible death. Jesus provides hope in verse 20. I want you to look at this. I am with you always to the end of the age. David Livingston actually grabbed held hold of that verse 
and, and almost constantly repeated and quoted that verse to his own heart as he continued to push forward. Turn with me to Mark chapter 16. This is the second Great Commission passage. Verse 14, Mark chapter 16, it says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. Okay, the same audience, the eleven disciples. The twelfth is missing. He hung himself. They haven't replaced him yet. And he, Jesus, rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he says this, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This particular Great Commission passage exposes one of the greatest barriers to gospel advance. Unbelief and hardness of heart. Do we have a responsibility to the explosion of immigrants in Aurora? To the incredible Ethiopian population that lives in Aurora? Do we as a church have a responsibility to them? And I would say we do. It's going to have to be strategic. But what will get in the way, Jesus is telling us here, is unbelief and hardness of heart. He's talking to believers. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Third Great Commission text. While you're turning, the emphasis here is twofold. The content of our message to be proclaimed and then the response and reward in light of that proclamation. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Then he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, okay, the first five books of your Bible, and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the classic Hebrew explanation of all the scriptures, everything must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Okay, the content of the message that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise again. It was a necessary sacrifice or there is no forgiveness of sin. And secondly, the response that there should be repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John twenty twenty one. Turn there quickly. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Just think about that for a second. How did the Father send the Son? Before Jesus came to the earth, he was worshipped by angels. He didn't know suffering. He didn't know hunger. He didn't know rejection. He didn't know hate. As the Father sends me, so I send you. Jesus was sent in poverty, in obscurity in Bethlehem, in rejection, in humility, in hate, in present-day religious opposition, in violence that ended in martyrdom. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. These things are so counterintuitive to the world in which you and I live and breathe in, which does everything possible to maximize comfort and self-interest and minimize any 
kind of pain. I mean, at the slightest headache, most of us make a beeline to the ibuprofen bottle. And, and I do, too. I hate headaches. And this is why I'm going to say unreached peoples are still unreached. Because we still aren't, most of us aren't willing to follow the steps of our Savior, whom we call Lord and Master. Turn to Acts chapter 1. We've now moved into the early history of the early church. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He is predicting Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, a one-time historical event not to be repeated and not to be sort of conjured up in, in a local gathering. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, here you have these 11 men just watching their Lord go up. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Basically, he's giving you a mission. Go do it. He's going to come back. But do the work until he returns. Turn forward to Acts chapter 13. This will give you an idea of the kind of men the early church started to send. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now you're going to start seeing all these elements of the Great Commission come together, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's the definition of an apostle, a sent one. Interestingly, it's also the Latin root of the term missionary, sent one. Not that the missionary is an apostle in the sense of a biblical apostle who had to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ and was often accompanied, accompanied by apostolic sign gifts. But now you have a man being sent off, a sent one, to proclaim the gospel. Why is this so important? Turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 14, where Paul sort of logically works through why this is so important that we grasp it. I'm going to pick up the reading in the middle of verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are, what's the next word? Sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, this passage identifies the work that must take place among all nations, specifically verse 14, preaching. These preachers are sent. How are they to preach? How are they to proclaim this good news unless they are sent? And the task of these sent ones preaching is where Christ has not been proclaimed. Look at verse 20. To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Now, go, go down to verse 23, for, and this, this statement should actually shock you. He says, I no longer have any, more, any room for work in these regions. How is that possible? Are, are you telling me that every individual 
had been evangelized in that entire geographic area that Paul had been working in? And the answer is no. The answer is Paul understood his mission as a sent one, as a missionary, if you would, to proclaim, lay a foundation, and move on to the regions beyond that have never heard of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4:11 to 12, it says this, And he, Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For this reason, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Four, possibly five titles are provided here explaining God's design, not only for the building up of the local church, but for the extension of the gospel to the regions beyond. It's interesting that the Bible uses the term evangelist only twice and the term evangelists, plural, once. Never uses the term evangelism, but it does use evangelist as an office and evangelists as an office, plural. And the Bible only calls one man in, in your New Testament an evangelist. And his name is Philip. Matthew Henry said evangelists were sent to, listen to this, this sounds a lot like what we call a missionary, to settle and establish such churches as the apostles themselves had planted. Acts 19.22 says this, And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while, which seems to give, we talk about the, the Pauline kind of missions, but there's a Timothy-style missions where he stays back to support and expand the church. Dr. Scott, who was an older Episcopalian, wrote this, quote, The office of evangelist in primitive times was in most respects similar to that of missionaries in subsequent times. They were preachers of the gospel without full apostolic authority and without any stated charge going among the heathen to found churches or visiting churches already formed to set in order the things that were wanting to supply the deficiency or aid the labors of the stated pastors and to stimulate them to greater earnestness in discharging their duties. When zeal for propagating the gospel subsided, the office fell into disuse, but in one form or another, the office of evangelist must revive along with the work of evangelizing the nations. The scripture's picture of an evangelist is very different than what most of us understand as evangelists pulling a fifth wheel with a singing group, preaching the gospel to churches who are already established and mature and who have had the gospel for decades. And I believe it's important for us as a church to get back to understanding this office so that we can be effective as a local church in reaching the people you saw on the screen this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Again, the only man called an evangelist in Scripture. What do we see him doing? Actually, Acts 8 verse 30. And I want, you to be, I want you to be sensitive, intuitive to all the different aspects of the Great Commission that we already looked at. And I want you to see them in these sort of character studies in the New Testament. Acts chapter 8, verse 30. When the Spirit prompted Philip, right here you have the power of the Holy Spirit, to join himself to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. So you have the power of the Holy Spirit leading a believer to an African unbeliever who, by the way, was reading already by God's providence and sovereignty, Isaiah 53. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? By the way, that's missions. 
The eunuch replied, how can I accept some man should guide me? Acts 8, verse 5, if you would go back, look at the progression to get him into contact with this man. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. He's doing exactly what Acts 1, 8 says, from, from Jerusalem to, to, to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. He is, and he's already proclaiming the gospel. Verse 6, and the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. As they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized men and women. Okay, Matthew 28. Look at Acts 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now Philip is apparently going to a place he has never been before, and he's going and walking by faith, but still led by God. Look at verse uh, 35. Of course, after he makes contact with this African man, and it says, and Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scriptures, that's his starting point. He preached Jesus to them. Verse 38. And Philip ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Very interesting snapshot, almost miraculously dumped off at another location, but he, he, he fulfilled a mission in an, to an unreached person led by the Spirit of God. Okay, so you have Philip. What about Paul? We're given a glimpse of the Apostle Paul's work in Acts, Acts 18, verse 4. I'm just going to start reading these for sake of time. Uh, Paul at Corinth. Okay, we understand the wickedness of that city. What did his mission look like? What did it entail? Out of a thousand things he could be doing, what was this missionary, this apostle doing? Quote, Paul at Corinth was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. In Acts 19, verse 8, Paul now at Ephesus entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. A longer passage, as Paul is standing before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 12, it says this. He's saying this to the king. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. You know what he's doing with his king, this unbelieving king? He's going to share his testimony. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. This is unbelieving Saul of Tarsus. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, wait a minute. Who was he persecuting? He'd been persecuting the church. He's on his way to persecute the church. He's persecuting men, women, and he's hurting children in the process. But Jesus doesn't say you're persecuting the church. He says you're persecuting me. And that's because we have lost this picture that, that the church is the body of Jesus Christ. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen 
me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people. Remember that, the promise? Behold, I'm with you wherever you go to the ends of the earth. And from the Gentiles to whom, here, here it is again, I am sending you, sent one, and here's the mission, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Turn to Romans 15. This will be the last large text we look at this morning. We've already read some of this. I want to rehash verse 19 and 23 together. Paul says this, From Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Verse 23, But now with no further place for me in these regions... And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. See, Paul was able to move on as an apostle because he understood his task and the geographical scope. He actually had fulfilled his mission. And now, if if you read Acts, he's, he's setting his sails, probably literally setting his sails towards the Spaniards. And the reason is because the Spaniards hadn't heard about Jesus Christ yet. Note the the implications of what Paul is saying. No missionary work now is needed between Jerusalem and northern Greece because his work is finished. Now he's going to invite the Timothys and the Tituses to come along. Timothy at Ephesus for about three and a half years. And Titus remains on the island of Crete to put things in order. You have that firming up. But it also seems to be that they're training the national leadership then to lead it beyond that. His work is done. He is now called to unreached peoples where there is no church, no shepherds or teachers to evangelize its own people and no copy of the scriptures. Paul is moving forward. And the reason he is back to Romans chapter 10, verse 14, is he'll ask this question. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And Paul sees his responsibility in that. And for us this morning, there are still thousands of people groups especially Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and tribal peoples who have no access to a gospel-preaching church in their own culture, no copy of a single New Testament book. I was reminded, I was visited two weeks ago by two Zambian friends, one whom I trained. He was already pastoring in a rural area called Kokolo, uh, but he came in, was one of our first students in Kitwe, Zambia, one of the first men I was able to see graduate out of the program They came by for a visit and he was reminding us that when they're holding these trainings out in the bush and they're trying to reach further and further into these rural areas, uh, that people will walk again another day or two. He has people walk four hours just to gather with that church in Kokolo on Sunday mornings. And I sat there with mixed emotions, thankful that that is happening. But I grieved for the American church as we move post-COVID in how lax And casual, we take the gathering of the local church. Almost, even among, I believe, some here, some of our members, that we can take it or leave it, I don't really need to be there. That doesn't explain everyone. I understand that. Even today, if you're not here and you're streaming online, that is not a rock thrown at you. There are still health concerns, and some of our people are navigating that very carefully. But it is the view of the church overall that I have seen in people who who have changed their perspective of gathering and missions. 
2,000 years have passed since the life of Christ. Yet the church has not finished its task. Today, 99% of Christian mission effort and financial support goes to places where the church is already present, what I would call gospel-saturated. doesn't mean there isn't a need, but I do believe there is a need for foreign-supported missionaries to move on. We have a task that remains unfinished. Three points on this. First, we as a church have a responsibility to identify people groups without workers and send people there primarily. We've started to do this in the last half decade. We've, been, we've made painful reforms even to those whom we support for how long and what areas. And there's still some reform that needs to be done. We must identify languages without Scripture and get the Scripture in their language and in their hands. And we don't have to create that right here. We have good brothers and sisters at work in this that can help us point strategically to getting the gospel to where it isn't. And then finally, we must identify countries, cities, and villages without a church and help establish a community of believers there. Let me read you a familiar passage in closing. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And by the way, I want a verbal response. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that? For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? Paul now will launch into a series of questions that he already knows the answers to, but it seems he is doing it as a deliberate attempt for the answers to echo in our heart. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, they can't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They can't. Creation tells you there's a God. It doesn't tell you God's son died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? They can't. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I have seen some ugly feet as I've traveled the world. I've seen ugly American feet. Ugly African feet. Calloused and beaten and thorn-torn and ugly Asian feet. But they're beautiful because it is the vehicle that carries the good news to where the gospel is not preached. We are God's plan. Highlands Baptist Church is God's plan for part of this task. We can't do everything, but what we do ought to be done strategically and effectively. I would love nothing more than to see Highlands and have Highlands start praying to see some of our own members be sent to preach the gospel. And I would love to see Highlands support them lavishly so that they're not trying to raise support for several years. Perhaps some of us over 50 years old, I'm in that category now, need to consider living part time among unreached people on a retirement visa. Hundreds of countries offer this. For example, Albania, Ecuador, Madagascar, Mauritius, Malaysia, United Arab Emirates. You can get a retirement visa be there totally as a seeming secular person and actually reach an unreached people group 
Two-thirds of the world's population lives where we send the fewest laborers. And I do not believe that represents the heart of a God who says he loves the world and he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Here's our responsibility. I wish we had another hour together. Most of you don't. Here's our responsibility. Who hasn't heard? Do we have a responsibility to them? Yes. I'm a debtor to the Jews and the Greeks, Paul said. Okay, where do they live? We don't know. We need to find out. And probably the main responsibility that lands on this morning is on me. And then how can we help? And let's get busy doing that. And then as we lead towards effective missions, it's not that you're bystanders and we're participants. We all have the joy of gathering into this. And I actually believe this. The more we begin doing what God has called us to do, the less disgruntled and complaining and critical we'll be as we enter into the mission God has called us to do for his glory and his name's sake. May God help us do this. May God help us do it better. Highlands has been very gracious in the past, very giving. But as we move forward into really the next generation, if God allows us, if he doesn't return for 10 years, how can we do this effectively and right? And can we see, even from affluent, entitled, front-range Colorado, can we not see a handful of our own people go forward to preach the gospel where Christ is not named? Let's pray.